I mean, me and you would be the only ones that know that we did this interview uh, about a year ago. I was listening back and had that, you know, gut-wrenching feeling of like, man, that whole hour or whatever it is is, is totally shot. Welcome to Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. My name is David, and on this episode, Aaron gets the chance to talk with Steve from the Canadian punk band Belvedere. Aaron and Steve first met back in the year 2000 when Belvedere played in Aaron's small hometown, which Aaron's band actually opened on that show. And this is a great jumping off point as they also talk about what it's like or what it was like being a punk band touring Canada back in the 90s and early 2000s and how you'd grow your fan base by playing all the small towns in between the big cities. Uh, they talk about how Belvedere got started and how they landed an opening spot on a cross-Canada bad religion tour. To that point, they'd actually only played in front of about one to 200 people but found themselves playing to thousands every single night. Uh, and they also discussed the new record from Belvedere. Hindsight is the sixth sense, which is out now. If you haven't listened to it yet, go check it out. Stop what you're doing right now. Go listen to the album and then come back. Uh, anyway, whatever you do, make sure you share the show with your friends. You can find us on uh, all the social medias at Growing Punk Pod, Instagram and Twitter. You'll find our personal Instagram and Twitters there as well. We're on Facebook. We're at GrowingPunkPod.com. We're on YouTube. We're wherever you find podcasts. So like I said, share it with your friends. And, uh, yeah, let's not waste any more time. This is Aaron chatting with Steve from So here we are a year later, doing again, catching up with Steve from Belvedere, and yeah. uh, maybe it's even uh, better to be doing it now because there's you know more to talk about in, in some regards with music, which we'll which we'll get to. But yeah, we're kind of going to do it you know twenty questions style, so we're just going to kind of bang through a bunch of different things here and kind of see where it takes us. So uh, yeah, let's cool. start with what what was the the moment or experience that made you want to play guitar, kind of more than just a hobby. You know, was it a live band you saw or a certain record? or you know, kind of what point was it like, okay, I want to pursue this more than just jamming? Well, first off, I want to say it's great that I learned how to put my actual name there. My wife's name was on this thing before, so oh, yeah. I've, learned, I've <laughs> learned so much since we tried to do this the first time. Um, I remember, so I played. I started playing piano when I was pretty young, maybe maybe seven or eight, nah, maybe maybe eight or nine. And I remember I was in junior high, and there, I, I was in band at the time. I was playing trumpet or baritone. I know I switched sometime there. But uh, there was some guys, some guys that I was in class with, Kevin and Fergus, that that were playing uh, music. And one one was a drummer and one was a guitar player. And I was it was so cool to see, you know, I was 13 to see kids play rock music. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I was listening to it already, of course, but just to see them play. And so that, that's I, I think I just after playing piano for five or six years, I wanted to get something louder. And I remember they were just playing like it wasn't punk or, you know, it was just like it was, you know, cream, like, you know, just like white room, like old, you know, like yeah. classic rock clapping, you know? And, um, and that was it. I watched him play it and I thought that was awesome. And then I, I went and, you know, talked to my parents about getting a guitar and app and that, that was really, it wasn't like bands on the radio or bands in my collection. It was like seeing kids my age play music. And that's, that's kind of how I got going. 
And then so you started playing guitar, and then, you know, at what point in playing guitar specifically, you know, did you kind of really get attached to that instrument? Pretty quickly. I, it wasn't long. Like, at 13, I was I was playing, you know, five to eight hours a day. You know, wow. like sometimes till my fingers got sore and bled and stuff. It was, you know, I just loved it. I just thought it was great. And I wasn't playing anything all that great or complicated. And, you know, I had a, a music teacher that kind of bailed early on lessons. So I just kind of taught myself. So I just, just played a lot of the same stuff. I'm surprised my parents didn't go nuts with me playing the same the same songs. But like a lot of early Metallica and like, you know, just kind of riffy um, uh, guitar driven music, you know, Um I didn't really get into punk until I was about 14 or 15. So it was a good solid year. I was just kind of playing like, you know, kind of metal or, you know, popular metal or, or classic rock at the time. And I wasn't very good and, and uh, argue whether I am now either. But I mean, at the time, I, I was just kind of just riffing along and just trying to get through it. But I didn't really get into singing. I'd sang my whole life. You know, my dad was used to play a lot of Beach Boys and we'd always sing harmonies and stuff like that. And um, But I didn't get I didn't really start considering myself a lead singer until Belvedere started and it was like I was nobody there was you know somebody had to sing so I sang that was really it so I was 18 or 19 by that point and that was my first band so um yeah that's that's kind of how I progressed to that and did it come naturally enough that you could just like play or sing just by ear or were you you know reading tabs or watching videos if there was videos back then, I don't know if there was. A... No, there wasn't yeah. at all. I, there wasn't even there wasn't even the internet until I was in. I I think, I mean, the internet and, and email. My first email when I was in college. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. You know, we're talking like '95, right? So yeah, early. Well, I guess that would. Yeah, I mean, I was just I was just kind of getting out of out of high school. So I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't like YouTube and videos and stuff. Like yeah, that yeah. Ever. So I I used to sing to a lot of bad religion records. You know, like. A lot of the early ones, no control and suffer and stuff. And so that's where I really learned about singing in harmony. But I think my style really came a lot from, you know, Greg Graffin, sure. But like, but um, Dave Smalley from Down by Law and Dagnostic. Okay, yeah. He's a real kind of like shouter, you know. And it's funny, when we first started screaming, we, 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 we first started jamming, we, we didn't have a PA. So I would just yell over the music. Oh, you man. Know? So we didn't have big amps. <laughs> we just had little combo amps. And like, oh, okay. you know, pretty light hitting drummer at the time so it was like you know i but i would we had this little pig nose amp and i think i we wired a mic through it and it was like you know 15 watt amp or something so like it wasn't very loud so i had to yell early on and i think that's where i got into just the whole like just i'm i'm a bit of a um a forceful singer i guess i'm loud yeah well i guess that that's a good way to do it i mean either you're gonna blow out your voice and then it won't be there anymore or, or you'll realize oh my voice is actually pretty powerful so i got something good here it might have strengthened it earlier on yeah i had to learn how to sing properly though because i did go through a time where i was blowing my voice a lot mm. um not earlier on but as you get older as, as you know things start you know don't work as much as they used to and i i learned how to sing a little better because of you know certain uh teachers and videos and stuff and and i warm up every day um you know when i'm touring yeah awesome well yeah and so like, you met go ahead so, I was going to say, so you mentioned some of some of those influences, you know, with, with Bad Religion and Metallica. Were there any other kind of influences that were, you know, really, um, you know, inspiring you or that you really wanted to, to kind of be like as you were as you were, you know, learning and progressing? Yeah, I mean, like like I think kind of the downstroking James Hetfield kind of like, you know, muscling through it. Like that's where I kind of learned how to be a rhythm player. And and Pennywise, I think the, like, you know, Fletcher's oh, yeah. playing 
earlier on, I, I really got into that kind of like downstroking, like just really heavy kind of a lot of chugs and stuff. And so that really got things going. But you know, like I, you know, when I was before I got into punk, I was listening to, you know, like Steve Vai and stuff like that stuff that okay. I could never, never play, you know, but I always loved the rhythms, the intricate rhythms to it. And so um, I found that to be really kind of guitar nerdy and, and uh, melodic, super melodic stuff. And it was cool because there was no vocals. So you really got to focus on the instruments. And so I got to see him play uh, a few years ago in front of like a hundred people. And it was so like trippy, you know, Wow. you kind of forget. Cause like, it, it's been a long time since I've been an avid Steve I listener, but it, you really just shoot back to when you're like 13 years old and you're just like, man, like this guy, and he's just out there just, you know, so flawless. Yeah. The the only thing, I don't really know anything about Steve Vai except when I was in, I don't know, like grade six or something. My neighbor had a bunch of CDs and I can just remember one of them was Steve Vai because there was a picture of him on the cover and it just seemed intriguing, but I didn't really like the music. So that's, yeah. that's all I know. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of acid involved with that kind of stuff, but you know, it's, it, it, it was awesome and, and just really made you think a lot you know, because the guitars had to, had to handle all the voicings because there was no singing voice. So, um, yeah, you know, before I kind of got into punk, that was kind of, I definitely had that, that phase and Joe Satriani and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. A lot of Van Halen and stuff too. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's cool to have those, you know, even just to, to get your ear, you know, maybe hearing something different, even if it's not something you love or that you even want to play, but just to know like, oh, okay, I can play this instrument that can do this. Even maybe I don't want to do that, you know, myself, but it just kind of opens that up to, you know, to that creativity, whether you go down that road or not. So I do think yeah. that is cool to have those influences. And I think like, you know, I very quickly realized I wasn't going to be that kind of a guitar player. And, you know, once you started listening to punk and stuff, it was uh, the bad religion you know, Pennywise, it was like, well, I can do that. You know, yeah, that, that sure. was the biggest thing. It was like, okay, cool. This is something I can do. That's three chords. That's four chords. I mean, that's pretty tough, but you know, for the most part, I can kind of play through it. And um, yeah, that was, that was I, the, the lyrics too. Like as soon as I started hearing Greg Graffin lyrics, it was like, everything just made sense to me. I had a roadmap, you know, it yeah. was like this, this just really great, um, really, really good, way of sort of articulating everything without really choosing a side you know he's always been really good about that mm. talking about the world and describing you know the issues of the world and letting everybody kind of take what they want from it but just like you know how many times have you sat listening to a bad religion record with a dictionary going like yeah <laughs> obsequious like <laughs> what's that you know and i'm just a kid like i'm just you know this is all just super influential to me and so it was it was awesome it took me down a good road and and a lot of those bands with really positive and and thoughtful lyrics is what really drove me to the to the genre. Yeah, right on. Yeah, More so gonna... than like sort of the Van Halen like metal stuff. You know, I just I was never like the you know Panama. Like I just you know it's fine for what it is, but I just couldn't. It didn't grab me lyrically. Well, yeah, there's something about punk that seems you know a lot easier to kind of relate or attach to versus you know like i don't know growing up listening to guns and roses or something or motley crew or you know whatever else the the options was like i didn't i didn't get into that stuff at all but even just thinking of those bands now it's it doesn't seem super relatable and is yeah. kind of you know personal to issues that you know everybody could be facing or dealing with yeah for sure so uh, yeah, kind of moving moving forward a bit here. Right? What was the first kind of bigger opportunity that Belvedere got? So you can kind of take that whatever way you see. 
so there's, that. there's there's two and one wasn't so big but it was big to us at the time and that was we got to play our first show as an all-ages show a friend of mine jeff was putting on all-ages shows and he put on gob at nice. the uh at the university and it's a little you know it's not there anymore it's, it used to be called the black lounge or the black lung and uh it was a little 300 cap room and i can't remember if another joe was supporting them on that tour but we got to play and we were the first band and we were a three-piece at the time this was before scott joined but uh it was like our chance you know there was 300 kids most of them didn't give a shit most of them sat down but it was our chance to sort of get them going and we did and it was it was it was a, it was you got to remember like Belvedere, I didn't, I was running a label at the time, Hourglass Records. So I was going to be the guy behind the bands. I wasn't even going to be in a band. So huh. that was just my shot to actually get out of the basement of us just jamming, writing songs and actually playing a show. So I, I swear like it, something switched during that show. And I was like, this is rad. I want more of this. And that, so that was a pretty defining show. Um, and then we got asked to do a bad religion tour in 99 across Canada and that was massive. Like, uh, it's still some of the bigger shows we've ever played. And you're talking now a band that plays in front of, you know, 50 people, basement shows in the U S to all of a sudden playing in front of two to 5,000 people a night. And we originally were going to do four shows in the West. And then we, had, we got the chance to jump on Toronto and Montreal. We were going out that way anyways, for our first Canadian tour. So it was strung out was the main support and this band Loudmouth, And then, in the east kid with manhead did those dates and we opened up and you know to show up in montreal in front of six thousand people on an outdoor show that was that whole tour was like big for us and it didn't necessarily turn into like you know you kind of think you do these big shows next time we come back to toronto there's gonna be 500 people no there's eight people and then there was nine people and then there was 12 people and then there was 40 people like it was like back to toronto nine times before it was like oh we played with the mad caddies in 01 and it was like where were you but you know, where were you before? There's 500 kids and they know all the words. It's like, what happened? You know, but <laughs> at the time we were playing every little town around Toronto. And, you know, when we did Canadian tours, we didn't do 17 show tours, Sydney to Sydney. We would do 35. Oh, yeah. So we would do every little town we could play. And so when all those kids kind of grew up a bit and moved to Toronto, it was like all of a sudden we had fans in Toronto. Yeah. So that bad religion tour really kicked it off, but it was like, two or three years later of hitting it three or four times a year where it was like, Oh, we actually saw, you know, and, and we, we saw those people and they were like, oh, this is awesome. I get to see you with bad religion, but you know, it is, you know, you see a band once that you don't know who they are. You don't necessarily all of a sudden like dive into them. Right. right. Sometimes you need to see them on support tours a couple of times. And I didn't realize that at the time. So that was just kids learning as we went along. Yeah. And how did that opportunity come about? Like, was it bad religion that connected you or was a booking agent or how did those two pieces come together bad religion actually um so in 98 the warp tour the bad religion had this pirate radio station contest and so they took in uh, bobby Shear, uh the drummer from bad religion at the time and jay bentley and this like pirate radio guy um had the station they were broadcasting from warp tour and so they would just be hanging out you know having beers talking to people hanging out and I think like thousands of bands gave them their demo tape so I gave them because no one stopped us our first our first CD in Vancouver. And three months later I get this call and it's fucking bad religion. And wow. I'm like, at first I was like, someone's pranking me. Right. And then I'm yeah. like, no, I recognize those voices. And, and they said, you guys won the con. We had that your CD at the top of the pile and it never left. Huh. And wow. um, I was like, all right, cool. What does that mean? So they, you know, Atlantic records gave us, a, you know, a couple grand or something for 
to record our next record, Angels of My Town. And they said, hey, we're coming across Canada with Strung Out. Do you want to open? I was like, yes. Wow. And um, that's it. Like it was that, it was that, you know, just what a crazy, crazy um, thing that turned into. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I just, to, to touch base on, you know, a lot of, you know, the band people that I talk to from the States, you know, they typically just kind of hit the major centers across Canada, if they even do across Canada. And so you had just mentioned, you know, you don't just play the major centers, you hit up everything. And I just think that's a really unique thing to, you know, to Canadian bands, because a lot, a lot of American bands or outside bands maybe don't realize, you know, how much space is in between the major centers. And so for a lot of Canadian bands, you know, if you want to survive, you have to hit up all those towns. And not only do you have to, but it's pretty cool because a lot of those small towns don't get a lot of music. And so there are, you know, hungry fans there. And that is a really great way to grow your fan base. And like you said, you know, maybe they end up moving to a major center, you know, years later. And then you kind of have that longtime fan because you came to their town and, you know, stood out to them. And so that's that's a really cool thing about, about a Canadian band and a band like you guys. Yeah, and not only in Canada, but in the States, like, you know, we play 90 shows in the States in a year. Like, we would play every little town that we could. Um, but when you're a Canadian band, like, you've only got so many major centers to play, 17, 15, whatever it is, right? So yeah. you, if you want to go pretty full-time, then you need to you need to play more. And, you know, for us, we were doing a lot of basement stuff and frat houses and stuff in the States. We were doing big tours down there in front of not many people, but that's where, that's where we hit after Bad Religion. Yeah, and and it really helps to create that work ethic. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, American bands don't play all those smaller centers, but I don't think they necessarily need to because they have the, uh, the, you know, the option of of playing a bigger one. So, well, some, like, I mean, you know, after that Bad Religion tour, we didn't play a proper support tour until, you know, 2001 with Mad Caddies. So we, we played with a lot of bands like ourselves who were just like workhorses. You know, we we were playing with lots of bands, like small BYO bands and stuff. And we'd, we'd meet up with bands on the road and, you know, we'd play in front of 20 kids together. So I, I saw a lot of that. We didn't we didn't see a lot of the big sort of fat and epitaph bands for the first couple of years. We didn't have those connections, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so we saw a lot of those bands that a lot of them aren't together anymore. You know, they didn't they they went for it, went 100, 150 shows a year. Did it for a while and then you know nothing happened for him. So yeah, what's the most memorable memorable Belvedere album to record and why? And any specific kind of memories tied to that album? Well, I think the last one is is memorable in that we had to be very strategic about how you do it. One because our bass player Ryan is in Toronto, and just before we were going to fly him out, like our drummer Casey owns Echo Bass Studio. So that's what he does. He's a recording engineer. So he's got the studio. So we're, we're, we're able to like set aside a bunch of time and go in whenever we can to do our parts. And because of, you know, he's got a console room and then he's got the live room. So we've got separation there. So you can come in there, put your mask on, go into the live room and don't see each other for eight hours. Right. So yeah. that's how we were able to record. And because Ryan was in Toronto, we were going to fly him out. And then three days before they kind of lock things down, it was like, well, we can't put him up in a hotel for 10 days or we can't, he can't stay with people. So it was like, right. yeah, he, he played through a DI in Toronto and we fixed it all in the studio here. So that was unique and, and a struggle, but at the same time they did a good job and we sort of had a couple of days, three days set up for bass. And I think it took four. So they, him and Casey did a great job getting that together. And then, uh, you know, Dan went and did his parts. I went and did my parts and then 
uh, Casey and I mixed it and it was like, you know, masks 10 feet apart, like, you know, eight hours a day mm. kind of thing to us. So, and the whole thing took about 40 days. So, um, yeah, it was, it was unique, but it was good because it just, there was no pressure. There was like, I don't think we even raised our voice to each other like in 40 days, you know? Mm. So it's like that and that's good. So I think that's probably why it's memorable, memorable for COVID, but also just in how relaxed the, the atmosphere was. Yeah, that's awesome. What is your favorite headline tour? Who are the openers and why does that stand out? I think the last Belvedere tour before we broke up in 0405, um, we had the full blast with us. It was just Ontario and Quebec. We, we had awesome. the full blast with us and we had 30 Nights of Violence, which was Graham's other band. So he was doing double duty. He played oh, okay. our set, take a breather and then do our, and we were playing a long set an hour and 15 hour and a half or something so he was pretty he was younger so he could take it <laughs> yeah but that was a really good one um the comeback the comeback tour that we did when when we came back in 2012 we did uh toronto montreal and ottawa it was just three shows but a willem scream opened up oh i love them it was awesome man like it was we did the opera house in toronto and it was sold out and <laughs> You know, like that's like 900 plus people. And for us, like I say, a band that had played in front of eight people, 10 people, you know, along the way, that was special to come back. And we played for an hour and 45 that night. We played so wow. much music. Because at the time, we thought we were just going to come back, do a dozen, you know, reunion shows, and then that was it. I didn't know we were going to keep rolling. So, um, yeah, those those were, were pretty big, pretty big. And to have, you know, Willem Scream open up that last um, run was was pretty special. It's yeah. Like, tough band to go after. They're pretty, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, definitely one of my favorite <laughs> live bands. I wish they would come around here more often, but yeah, yeah. any time they do, it's love watching them. So kind of on the opposite spectrum, maybe you already answered this with the Bad Religion, but what's your favorite slot on a tour as support, and who was that with, and why was that your favorite? So we, we went to Europe in 04 with the Mad Caddies, and we'd become pretty good friends with those guys. We did We did Canada together with them in Flashlight Brown, and then we ended up going to Europe about three years later. And uh, it was fun because we did a lot of dates. We did like 35 dates and they were really big in Europe um, and they still do really well there. And so I remember we played in Cologne. There was like 2000 people there and wow, and the Astoria in London, like 2000 people like sold out. Like just and I remember the 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 Astoria being like really, really hit me, you know, because I knew the history of the place. I had some family from England that were just from outside of London that came out. And, you know, great show to have them sit on the stage and watch you play, right? Yeah. As, like, you know, beer cans are getting thrown at me and stuff, you know, too. So <laughs> you know, we, didn't, we didn't always fit in with, like, the ska punk crowd. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but the, you know, Europe's really, like, as a whole, UK and Europe are, are pretty open to, you know, those types of bands mixing together. And it's just as people, they're just super, super fun. And we had a blast. Some of the, that's probably some of my favorite times on, on tour. Yeah, that does seem like an interesting band. I mean, there there are lots of tours, you know, especially then that were, you know, mixed genre, you know, whatever we're going to call it. But how, yeah. did, how did that come about? Was that just kind of a, a package being put together? Or? No, well, we had toured with them across Canada in 01. Oh, yeah. It was a booking agent that had set something up in the States uh, that we had. And he, he, he had sort of, he's from the States and <clears throat> had hooked us up, said, you got this chance to do a tour with Matt Caddy's. And, um, I knew the Mad Caddies. They weren't like, I wasn't listening to them religiously, but then as it tends to go, when you go on tour with bands, you end up listening to them all the time afterwards. And that's yeah. kind of what happened. So we became very good friends with, with, with the Caddies after the Canadian tour. 
and really bonded and i think just it was just a matter of time we ended up doing some stuff in, in the states with them and and then when this is a standoff started we even did some stuff in europe with them afterwards and um i just saw them there last year you know in calgary and edmonton so just uh just like old times yeah are they a european band or are they from the yeah, states? from california oh, okay yeah i thought yeah. they were american but yeah awesome so yeah, yeah. N- another big part of of being on the road is spending time in a van and so i, I always love uh just kind of asking, you know, if there's any specific memories or special memories about driving and also go-to records uh, while driving because those those two things kind of go hand in hand. I don't know about special times in the road. Like, no, nobody really says, like, our, special, our most special times on tour were in the van. Like, no, that's <laughs> usually when you're counting, you know, the amount of, like, trees that go by or whatever, trying to keep, you know, how, how many Red Bulls did I have to stay awake? Um most of my memorable things are like not good stuff. Yeah. Like you happen to be, you know, 50 feet before a, a semi smashes into a car and, and someone, you know, gets in a, in a bat in bad shape. I, that's the stuff that I, it's the scariest stuff. And it's the stuff that we all kind of like as band touring bands really worry about, you know, yeah, for sure. out there so much. And like, it's just the, the law of averages. Right. Yeah. So I've seen a couple of crashes and thankfully we've only been hit. We, we got hit by a semi truck. Like we were, we were driving from, we were with big wig and death by stereo, I think. And we were coming from Edmonton to Calgary. And it was like in May and one of those kind of freak storm snowstorms that we tend to have here. And we all, so basically there's so much snow and everyone kind of moved to the middle of the road. And this, I don't know what this guy was doing, but this semi truck hit me from behind. He hit the trailer and the trailer put punched into the van Oh, and man. I was, he was going about 90. I was going 80. I don't know what he was looking at. Obviously not our van, but he just rammed into us. And that was scary. Yeah. I won't forget that. I mean, no one was hurt. Gear was okay, but the tr- the trailer was munched and we had to get someone to come up from Calgary to grab it. And then we actually had to rent. Did we rent a van? Yeah. We rented a van after that too, because we, we were going across Canada with, with those guys. So yeah, that's probably one of the more memorable ones. Yeah. And another reason why I like to, to bring that up is because a lot of, you know, music fans probably don't think of that. You know, they're they're excited to see a band live. They show up at the show. They don't think like you know, wonder where the, you know what the last eight hours of this band's life was like. Like, where did they come from? Had they slept the night before? You know, yeah. Were they almost in an accident and all that kind of stuff? So it is a, a different perspective, just showing you know what musicians go through to to bring music to to fans in each city. Yeah, and I mean, like I. I love, I'm a someone who really legitimately loves being on tour. So, um, but I drive a lot too, and sometimes past exhaustion. So I, you know, you got to watch that stuff. It's, uh, and you know, we've all heard of all the, you know, bands that have been in accidents and, and yeah. died and stuff. And it's like, it's, uh, you know, just to play music. Yeah. And any kind of special go-to records or bands, you know, whether it's late night drives or early morning, you know, I can only, it's hard to, everything kind of blurs into one big, yeah, big moment fair. sometimes, but, but I, there, I, I had a lot of silence. We never, we had a stereo in our first band and I think it got ripped out and just no one bothered to like put in. We just didn't see it as an expense to put it another stereo in. So we had a lot of silence back in, back in, maybe we would have liked each other more back then if we actually had music <laughs> to play. Yeah. You guys didn't have like disc mans or something or what? I think everybody did, yeah, and they kind of listened to the thing, and I just drove and just like just listened to the road. Yeah, and I guess you would also have to haul along like CD books and all that kind of stuff too. I I remember that. Yeah, yeah, those were the times for sure. 
Yeah, well, it's, yeah, that's, and I mean, sometimes having that, that time of silence is good. Like, I love, even now, like, if I go on a road trip with my family, I need music or podcasts or something, because that helps me focus. If I just have silence or hearing the kids fight, then it's yeah. distracting. But yeah, there's definitely, you know, good time to have that quiet. Were there uh, any bands that Belvedere uh, never has had the opportunity to tour with yet, and, and uh, who would that be? I don't know. I was thinking about this question actually a while ago and um, I don't know. I feel like we've kind of like we've we've toured with every band that I ever kind of grew up with, like in this kind of, you know, punk genre. Yeah. There's some bands that like, you know, some of the bigger rock bands and stuff that you probably will never play with. Right. I was like the Foo Fighters and uh, I think the Descendants would be a big one for me. You know, we've uh, we've never played with them other than like festivals, but that would be that would be a good one for sure. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing. If you know, especially again, uh, and I'm not saying it as a slight, you know, a Canadian band, but you know, there does sometimes seem like there is less opportunities, just depending kind of how things go. So that's awesome if you've been able to to tour or play with with all of your you know favorite bands in some way. Yeah, we're we've been lucky, and like especially since we came back in 2012, the band really has had great opportunities, whether it be through good promoters in South America or festivals, or it seemed like. The seven years that we were apart, really, the band kind of grew, which mm. is unusual. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've played with, we've toured with Pennywise. We've toured with No Effects. We've, you know, it's been a while since Bad Religion, but we've kind of hit like those, my, my list. You know, if my, the 15-year-old kid in me had a list, I'd probably hit most of them. And, and we're very fortunate, especially being from, you know, being from Calgary. We're not in the industry, you know. Right. We, we always had to leave and tour because, there's, you know, we've just got our local scene here like everybody else. So, um you know, it's been a lot of hard work, but it's been, you know, a lot of luck and, and good people looking out for us. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's more so what I meant. Not, you know, not sliding Canadian bands, but just, yeah, we don't have the same, you know, kind of music hubs, you know, maybe Toronto, Vancouver, kind of yep. a few major centers, but it's not like, you know, where you hear of California or somewhere where, you know, these labels are and they have, you know, 10 bands from there that are all doing well. And it's, yeah. it's a little bit more segregated up here. Yeah. And I think, you know, we never ended up on the kind of the big us labels, right? Like we had, we had, you know, labels like jumpstart records and 206 records and um, smaller labels that just really liked the band and, and did everything they could for them. You know um, we had opportunities to play with and, and play in front of those labels and stuff and stuff just never worked out or, you know, the band split up or whatever the hell happened, but um, that's okay because I feel thankful for what we have. And um, you know, the labels that we have put our stuff out on have done their best. Yeah. Well, and sometimes that's, that's even better, you know, a smaller label, but you're getting more attention and they maybe have, you know, more time to care about their bands instead of being on a big label that has 20, 30 bands or whatever. Right. So there, yeah. there is something good about that too. Uh, For sure. Craziest thing that's happened while on stage playing. So this didn't happen with Belvedere, but this happened with, um, this is a standoff. We were on tour with strung out and death by stereo and we did all of Canada and we did a, a good chunk of the States and I don't know, it's not that crazy, but like, it was just funny and you can actually look this up on YouTube. Um, so I was on stage and Fletcher was there from Pennywise and he's super funny and scary uh, depending on you know, <laughs> what time in the last 20 years you've hung out with him. But yeah, um, you know, he was great. We were hanging out, we were chatting and you know, I'm just like a super fan. So um we're yapping and so we're on stage and we're watching strung out play 
And there's like young, I don't know if he's a younger kid or something. He ends up getting on stage and Fletcher grabs him and like windmills him around on stage during strung out set and tosses him in the audience. And he's fine. I don't know how old he is, 12, 14, 15. And then he gets out and you know how big Fletcher is, right? He gets out and he stage dives and you can just see everybody in the audience go like, oh, like, (laughs) and so you can look it up on YouTube. It was at the the Anaheim House of Blues. It's like Fletcher with, you know, on stage with strung out. And it was, I mean, hilarious and like holy shit so i mean it wasn't like anything crazy you know but it was just like it's funny that it's documented i remember seeing this on youtube and i was like talking to a buddy i was like dude there, there's me watching this shit and i probably could see my mouth open up as as he went as everybody else did when he went and stage dived into the crowd yeah oh, that's awesome yeah it's cool having those those memories where even if it's somebody else and it's just at a show you're at Right, like it just it kind of cements that show in your mind and yeah, it takes I'm you right like, back. I've never been someone that's taken this stuff for granted. Like, there's so many times where the kid in me comes out and goes, you know, like I got to pinch myself. Like, I can't believe I'm here. Like, I can't believe I'm here on the side of the stage watching Lagwagon play on Crows Rock in front of fifteen thousand people. Like, how did this happen? You know, and that I don't know if that's just something I'm lucky to have, but I there's so even now there's so many times where i kind of go like holy crap like how does a band from calgary get to do this this cool Mm. shit so yeah yeah well i guess it just goes to show you keep doing something you know long enough and you put time and energy in it to that you know it's going to work out one way or the other so it's it goes to show you know good work ethic uh maybe you know again maybe alluded this with not being able to or not signing with you know a bigger label but any kind of music industry letdowns or frustrations (laughs) I don't take this stuff to heart. Maybe like some people do. I like I've ran a label. I run a booking agency. I see things from the band side of things and the industry side. So I have a lot of empathy for all sides. Like when I'm talking about deals with labels and stuff, I really do go in going what's good for them is also good for us kind of thing. Yeah. Letdowns. I mean, sure. Like we didn't get on this tour. We didn't make the here that, you know, there's lots of little things, but nothing like that that's major my biggest pet peeve with like with labels is not having good reporting you know like everybody these these labels start up and they want to put out music and everything but then they don't want to handle the accounting part of it so i find myself having to chase after people for like well where are we sitting you know what's this looking like and you know and just after a while you just like fucking give up but that's one thing i love seeing i I don't fair or not i just want to know i like numbers you know so yeah, um, that's my frustration. So if you're gonna start a label, learn how to use an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, there you go. Any? Uh, do you can you remember any of those tours that that fell through that maybe you really hoped would would happen? Nothing that didn't get making up made up later. Yeah, awesome. Yep. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's nice. Again, when you keep going, maybe that opportunity will present itself again. So it's yeah, uh, that's right. Good to not give up. Uh, yeah. Best friendship you've made with another band member, non Belvedere. Uh, what band was it, and you know why has it lasted so long? If it has, I mean, Downway and Belvedere have had as much history as anybody. So oh, Dave, yeah. Dave is a, has been a friend of mine since '95 when I put out the record on Hourglass Records. Um. Tyler from Pulley is probably someone who I keep in touch with quite often. And we just bonded just from touring and Chuck from the Mad Caddies. Those are, those are three for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always like just, you know, and when bands are on touring I and mean, you're spending lots of time together, there's probably, you know, tons of guys that, 
that you're friends with or, you know, keep in touch with. But I'm always just curious, you know, which friendships kind of stick or last longer and kind of, kind of why that is. So, yeah. And like, I mean, I remember like, you know, I, a lot of stuff's personal, but like, you know, I do remember having like good bonding moments with all those guys and like Chuck, I remember us being in, in, um, in Brighton, England and, you know, we're smoking weed or drinking in the back of a bus or something like that. And, you know, he gets out an acoustic guitar, um, and gives it to me and we start playing no effects rib from like start mm. to finish, you know, like the whole <laughs> album and you know, like you're not getting it all right. You know, you're kind of like just drunk, like singing and stuff, but for like half an hour, we just like belted it out. And those are, those are the moments that you kind of cherish and, and you think about 20 years later, you know, the, you don't think about the big crowds or the crazy, you know, schedule or whatever you think about, you know, that those good bonding moments. Those, those yeah. are good ones for sure. Yeah. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. When you look back at all the years of playing in Belvedere, what kind of gives you the biggest feels? You know, what kind of makes you the most nostalgic or emotional or or whatever? So, like, I'm not a green room guy. So, you know, when we play, I kind of like towel off, grab a drink, and I hit the crowd. You know, still wearing the shirt that usually that I'm that I just played in, wearing drenched, right? Yeah. And I just go in for the big hangouts. You know, the hugs, the pictures, the whatever. Like. I love that. That's, that's almost more important to me than, than the music is, is the connection with fans and people. Um, maybe cause <clears throat> deep down, I still can't believe that we do a lot of this stuff, you know? So yeah. you kind of get it all in while you can, you go, well, this might be the only time I'm in Brazil or Russia or whatever. So I'm going to get out there and I'm going to meet every person there because it's important. I think it's important as a band and an ambassador of our band, but also personally, I, I want to meet these people. And so that's, that's always the memorable thing for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. This this question isn't in here, but I just thought of it. What is there a, a country where you had an interaction with someone that that just made you think, like, man, like I can't believe there's somebody in this place that knows my band. Yeah, I've had. I won't get too much into it, but I've had some interesting um, interactions with people in Canada, in South America, where they said like. For whatever reason, the music saved their life. Hmm. Um, and that's really special, you know, like, and they, they come with, you know, the story. Like I was at this point, I was about to do this and I was listening to your music and it stopped me from doing it. Yeah. And it's happened, you know, probably four or five times. So, you know, to meet those people and like, you know, there's usually a lot of tears and they cry and hug you and stuff like that. And it's, it's pretty overwhelming because you didn't really expect that when you started playing music, you just thought you'd play music in your basement and hopefully somebody likes it. But to have that kind of impact <clears throat> is huge. And I think, you know, people, we, there's a lot of our fans that actually have Belvedere tattoos too. And a lot of them have a story to tell with mm. that too, whether time and place where the music helped them out. I mean, you can't express how, how much that means. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, like you said, it's not really something, you know, most artists probably thinking about when they're writing a song, right? It's not about like, you know, how is this going to make somebody else feel? You know, you're not thinking of a whole bunch of other situations where these lyrics might impact someone or, you know, may- maybe that happens, but I don't I don't hear that often, right? And so it's mm-hmm. just kind of that surprise of like, man, I can't believe this song, you know, regardless of what the content or the song is about, like, you know, yeah. it can mean something different to so many people and you never really know the impact that, that it's going like, to have. I'm not- and I'm not a tough guy, right? So I get choked up with this stuff too, you know, whether yeah. it be in person or later or even now thinking about it. Like it's, you know, it hit, it hits me. 
Yeah, well, and I I would hope that those are going to be the things that, you know, the lasting memories, right? There might be a lot in there, but you might just picture this one face where it's like, man, my music impacted this person to the point of them still being alive. Like the rest almost doesn't matter, right? So it's that's a really yeah. unique um, perspective. Yeah. If you could only do one more thing with Belvedere, what would it be? I just want to hit the festival circuit in, in Europe. We had a lot planned this year, like big festivals, Resurrection, Jera, Punk Rock Holiday, Brack Rock, Tells Bells, Manchester Punk Festival. Some we've done before, um, but some we haven't. And um, I'd like to do that. If we could just do that, I'd be I'd be pretty happy. Like Punk Rock Holiday, I did that with this as a standoff on the small stage, the beach stage. And this year we were supposed to play Belvedere on the main stage in like a really good wow. spot. So I'm hoping that'll get made up. Um, that's a That's a special one. And, you know, it's... They've capped it, the capacity. It's not the biggest festival, but it's awesome. It's in Slovenia in the mountains, and there's like a river going by, and everyone's just wow. like in the river. It's amazing. Like in that, you know, and then everybody goes and has the big party at the big stage, and it's just like five days of chaos. Yeah. Is, is that why you like the festival so much and look forward to it, or what are some yeah, of the things that go into that? Like, you know, a club is a club is a club, right? Like whether you're in Japan or South America or, or the States, it's like they all kind of look like – the same right after yeah, a while that's true but a festival gives you a chance to see you know whether it was a warp tour back in the 2000s or what the european festivals are now or montebello rock fest that a couple times we played it you get to see real locations in different locations and weather and sometimes you got to deal with shitty weather and sometimes you got to deal with um you know oppressive heat and all that stuff but there's just something about like going to a punk rock show and watching bands at two o'clock in the afternoon and diving into a river afterwards that's just yeah. like I don't know, man. It's 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 something else. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Uh, what are top? Th- or what are your top three, or just top three influential punk albums? What are they, and why those? So I think we talked about these the last time. I couldn't remember which ones they are. So let's. Uh, I might have those. changed it, but I I had yeah, three okay. in mind. I had three in mind. So <clears throat> Bad Religion Suffer. It wasn't the first Bad Religion album I heard. No Control was the first one I heard. I started listening to Bad Religion in about '92, and so. I went back and listened to Suffer, and I was like, this is crazy. It came out in 88, and it just seemed so far ahead of its time. And still, like, I just can't believe that came out, you know, in 1988. You know, Reagan, the Winter Olympics. Like, it was. I remember being, like, a 12-year-old kid, or, you know, was it the Reagan years? I don't know. Anyways, but, like, I was, like, a 12-year-old kid, and it was just, I couldn't imagine a band coming out with that record then. It was just mm. the, the lyrics were so crazy, and it was such a big step forward from their last record. Uh, well, a really big step from their, technically their last record into the unknown. But, um, you know, I had How Could Hell Be Any Worse? And that was just like a cool, like, indie punk record. And then Suffer was just so crazy to, to, to hear that. It was it was very special. SNFU, the one voted most likely to succeed, was a big one for me. It was just so different and, and really straight away from sort of what I considered sort of typical 4-4 pop punk or yeah. punk, skate punk, whatever you called it. Um just so different. And I liked SNFU before, but when they came out with that one, it just really hit me. Like, sonically, the record just sounded amazing. The lyrics, the music, those guys were just such killer players and so unique. Um, it just really, there was so much cool, like dissonance, you know, it was like in, in a lot of the the chord structures and the voicings and everything, you just like, it felt, you kind of felt bad a little bit, but mm-hmm. it felt good, you know, like yeah. SNFU was so great about that. Right. Like, um, so that was a big one. And the no effects ribbed that came out in 92. And, uh, I, had, I think I had heard S and M airlines up until that point, And then 
heard rib and I was like, Oh my God, this is exactly what I want. You know, like riffy kind of metally stuff. And, and, you know, sometimes funny lyrics, sometimes serious, serious lyrics. And then I went back and listened to, uh, their first record. Um, shit. What was it called? It's funny that I can't remember that. Um, anywho, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of it. Wasn't that song. good? Yeah. I went back and I was like, this wasn't very good. Like they didn't play very well. And but I then I love that one too. Um the one with the you know the eating eating the human on the on the, the cartoon on the front. Anyways, whatever. Um I'm gonna have a little brain farts throughout this no matter yeah. what. Yeah, no, that's that was a long but, time know, ago too. So but you know, ribbed was like kind of set the roadmap for me as well for for kind of music. Um and liberal animation. There it is. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> And I like No Effects. They were my favorite band for 20 years after that. Yeah, awesome. What's uh, what's your biggest inspiration for songwriting? So whether it's music or lyrics, you know, whether it's from 20 years ago or still now, what what kind of inspires you to to feel like you you have something that you need to put out into the world? Well, I can't say it throughout the whole history because we've we've done a pretty wide gamut of of sort of more political music down to wrestling. So. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm in a different headspace now than I was when I was, when I yeah. was 19, but I think lately it's just kind of the plight of everyone who struggles and sort of hope for my kid's generation and sort of like the planet around him and stuff. I think a lot about that stuff now. I think a lot of parents, when they have kids, you start to think a lot less about yourself and more about like the legacy you're leaving behind, or at least trying to positively influence the world around your, your kids. Uh, so I, I write a lot about that. I don't write about my kid, but I write about you know, I have a lot of empathy for sort of people that are struggling and I can, I can, I feel that a lot. So I try to, to write about that. Yeah. And how about like when you, when Belvedere was kind of starting out, you know, did you find lyrics came, you know, easy to you or was it the music always came first and you just kind of felt like, well, we have to have something to sing about. And so you kind of yeah. think, or... it's always been music. It's always been music first and then lyrics second, but my lyrics don't come at, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon. They never did. So they've always come between midnight and four in the morning. And that's really a tough schedule now for me to, to yeah, maintain. No kidding. so I have, <laughs> I have to just keep myself up and then I start thinking a little, a little differently. And that's where, you know, the lyrics start pouring out there. Well, that's interesting. Has it, have you always been the main lyricist in the band or were any of the other guys ever contribute? Yeah. I mean, probably the main one, like with Jay and Scott in the band, uh, you know, Jay wrote a lot of lyrics too, you know, for Twas Hell and Fast Forward. Um, I wrote most of it for Revenge. And you know all of it. Well, actually, not all of it. Casey wrote one one of the the songs for uh, for this record, but most I'd say yeah, most of them. Especially in the early days, like I wrote all the lyrics and stuff. So yeah. And are there any that you kind of go back to now and like cringe over, or do you feel good about kind of what you've you put know, out there? You know, like I mean, I don't revisit those records in full. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you know, it's the first record's fine. It did it did what it had to do. There's some good stuff on there that I still like and. And there's some stuff that it's like, well, you know, you sing about wrestling or, you know, Todd from Boogie Nights. Like, it's not that in depth, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't get too hung up on it. I was 19 years old. Now I'm 44. So, yeah, things change. yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good to have that perspective too. You know, to, to know like every, everything comes at a time, and not everything is going to be meaningful throughout your whole life. So, well, the world changes, and your perspective changes, and I'm a lot different than I was you know, 25 years ago. So, um, I'm proud of everything we've put out for what it was, but I also like that the band continued to work at improving. 
um, whether it be our, our own separate instruments or songwriting or just as a group trying to be tight live. Uh, it was something we worked at. Yeah, right on. So not counting, you know, this last year of COVID, what do you find is the biggest challenge of, of being a band kind of in this in this day and age? Well, you can't tour, right? So that's, I think that's, I don't know if there's even a second. Like, Sorry, I, like, like outside of COVID. So, you know, besides yeah. the last year. Yeah, I, I don't know how it is for everybody else. I mean, it's been a challenge for me personally that, you know, we've had band members leave, like, you know, not founding members, but like guys that have been around in the band since 98, right? So that's been yeah. a challenge. Rebuilding the band, um, working, you know, being being one of the primary songwriters and building a building a band with new guys, you know, and trying to like find rapport between all of them and uh, and working together to have synergy, you know, and, and be tight as a band and stuff. And it's something that we'll continue to work at for a little while. But I've been really lucky that the guys that we that joined the band weren't just like hired guns that just like play the, the old tunes. Once we knew that we were going to be locked down and it was time to write new music, those guys really stepped up. And, you know, I don't take credit for all this stuff like they everybody threw songs into the pot and and we worked on it. Um, so, you know, they all ended up being really good songwriters as well as players and people. Yeah. How have you found adapting and over the years, whether it's, you know, going from CD sales to streaming or, you know, social media, kind of that whole, because that's been, you know, this comes up fairly often with bands that are still around now is it's such a different landscape of being a band now than it was when you first, you know, fell in love with this. So how have you found those shifts? Yeah, it's, I mean, it is a shift. And, you know, when we were, when we first started, the first couple of records were all on tape. You know, we, we weren't recording digitally. So just, you know, the mechanics of putting together a record first off has changed. So, um, but how you've marketed yourself as a band, you know, I've only known touring, right? So this whole idea of like social media is funny because it seems easy because we used to just like grind it out, you know, in front of 20 people every night. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we were around, I used to, book tours in the states off book your own fucking life the the website and the the magazine that came from maximum rock and roll so we would send out demo tapes with bios to to people months in advance and try to get a show at like whatever venue or whatever house party or or whatever so i saw that progression you know now it's like send an email or call somebody you know but yeah for the longest time it was like call somebody send them a package wait four weeks for them to get it and then hopefully book a show in front of 20 people in Marshalltown, yeah, Iowa. That's crazy. So it was a lot more, and you know, can't even imagine touring Europe. I mean, we started touring Europe in 01. So things were relatively established, but we were still kind of finding our way and making contacts and stuff. So, you know, we had some good people in Europe that that helped us out back then. But anyways, back to the question about sort of marketing yourself on, on social media now. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm somewhat up to date on this stuff. And then this week alone, I've been a total train wreck when it's like with the labels, like, okay, let's get ready to do this announcement and stuff. And it's like, I don't know how to get this video up on Instagram. What do yeah. I do? And it's like, <laughs> we're supposed to be announcing right now. And it's like, and start like handing off this stuff to the labels. It's like, can you do it? Cause like my kid's yelling at me right now. And it's like, yeah, it's Paw Patrol time here. This is not, this is not um, single releasing time. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. You learn to adapt, right? Like, it, you know, you, tr- yeah, I tr- you know, we get on TikTok and you get on Twitter and you get all this stuff and it's like, holy shit. Like sometimes it's just like, I don't want to look at my phone anymore. I just, I just want to like, just play music or play with the kid or, you know, 
I want to see people at shows. That's what I really, you know, you miss that stuff, right? Definitely. The virtual world is good because it's connected so much of it, but sometimes I feel like we're just so disconnected. Hmm. Yeah. And lastly, what's your favorite thing about uh, still being a band, you know, right now? Touring in the crowd. That's it. Yeah. I like touring. I like, I like uh, the crowd. I like playing music, but uh, man, it's so fun hitting these places sometimes. It, you know, the band's been to, I don't know how many cities. I, we've been to more than almost 40 countries. Wow. And, and a countless amount of cities. <clears throat> Such a trip, man. It really is. Yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. Love love hearing that. Yeah, so we're gonna uh, kind of move on and talk about the new record a bit. So hindsight is the sixth sense, which comes out May fourteenth, twenty twenty one. So like we uh, mentioned or kind of earlier, like the last time we talked a year ago, like you had already uh, kind of you know had some kind of music in the works or something. And so did what kind of happened this last year between then and now? Like did things get prolonged or delayed, or were you just kind of starting to write then and this was the, you know, it's funny because like this last year was supposed to be, you know, get the new guys, get them up to, to playing level. And then we were going to go hit all the all the festivals that I hadn't been able to do over the last couple of years. You know, we had a, every, everybody was on board. Everybody wanted a tour. And so that's what we were going to do. And I think I told you earlier that we were going to do about 90 shows and we were yeah. probably on 15 pretty good sized festivals. So that's all we were going to do. I, I didn't think writing was going to come around. I didn't know if it was ever going to come around, to be honest with you. But then I think in April, once, you know, the writing was on the wall about touring, wasn't going to happen for a while. And Casey brought forward Good Grief Retreat, the music for it. And, you know, we're lucky in that our drummer has a studio so he can come together with a full recorded, like demoed full song. Right. Mm, yeah. And then we started tweaking with it. And then we started, um, I started writing lyrics to it. And that really kind of got the ball going. And then some of the other guys came up with stuff. I came up with some riffs and then, you know by by december we were ready to start recording and then um and then we did so you know it was uh i didn't know we were going to write a record until the writing just started and we were like well let's go you know we got this many ideas and then you start setting goals for yourself and timelines like mm, yeah all right like let's let's have this amount of songs kind of roughly done by september and then like okay then i start talking to the labels and like hey you know we might actually be doing a full-length record here and and then you start setting hard deadlines where it's like, we have to have this stuff done, but that's mm. good. Cause sometimes I need a fire under my ass a little bit to, to get going on stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, we had a good chunk of it written and demoed and then, um, and then it really came together from September to December. And how many guys are, are different now in the band than when revenge came out? Well, Dan and Ryan. Oh, okay. So you've got two, two so Casey guys? and I, Casey's been in the band now for six years. Oh, okay. And so me and him just said, yep, do we want to do this anymore? And we said, yep. And so we got to work and, and, uh, and Ryan and Dan came around. Yeah. And how has that transition been having, you know, two new guys in, has that been a pretty good fit? Where did they come from? Yeah. They're younger guys like Ryan. We've known for a long time. He's from Calgary though. He lives in Toronto. Now he plays, uh, he used to play in a band with Casey called the Martyr Index. This is a long time ago. And so they knew each other. He lived with, he lived with Casey and Dan, Dan, played in a band called dead pixel and he was in some other bands and he'd recorded at Casey's studio. Okay. And so we had to, you know, first off we had to find a guitar player that, that, that could, that could play this stuff. Yeah. Um, we needed a solo guy, right. And we needed a guy that could not only play it, but could write it. So Dan came up pretty early and we didn't really start searching around too much afterwards, you know, 
it took a little while before we kind of said you're the guy but you know we kind of knew pretty early on like unless it was his job to lose yeah so once you kind of had all these deadlines in place that you just mentioned you know how did did you find the songs came together well you know was it stressful kind of what's what what do those few months look like when you know you have to have an end product and you know you're trying to discern you know is this good enough for the album or how does that all look for you as a writer yeah i mean we you know we had probably about six songs there for a while and it, the last six took well i guess seven took a little while we kind of set a target to try and write 14 songs and then we ended up cutting one <clears throat> but most of them stayed and um we knew because we demoed them fully, you know, that, that where they were kind of going to sit. And then, um, yeah, once we really got to go in and record and everything, then we, we, that's where it was kind of final decision making, but it did take a little while to get them to where we wanted them to be. Yeah. And so you mentioned a few of the inspirations, you know, kind of the way, the way the world is going and changing and, and having a kid now, were those kind of the main influences for, for kind of lyrics or direction of the album? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of thoughtful albums coming out this year, you know? Yeah, for sure. You're not going to... I saved the love songs for my acoustic record. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I think like Belvedere, where I am right now, lyrically, Belvedere needs to be talking about things. And some of them are uncomfortable things. But, you know, when you're sitting around lockdown for a year and you see, you see things like people suffering because they're not getting the help they need. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their livelihoods. Yet people are, corporations are making record profits. Countries are still going to war and blow, blowing billions on, you know, on the war machine versus, you know, helping their people. That stuff yeah. really pisses you off. And, you know, we're lucky we live in Canada and sometimes we don't see a lot of this stuff. I'm very privileged as, you know, where I am and, and where I'm from. And, but it, it just, yeah, it drives me crazy just seeing how, how shitty people are, are treated and, and you want to see that equality and you want to see governments helping people before, you know, enriching people that don't need to be enriched anymore. Yeah. 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 I'm, there's, there's a lot of bands that I'm looking forward to, to hearing from this year for sure that cause there are going to be a lot of good things to say. And so, yeah, it, it yeah is... I think so too. For I sure. guess another kind of positive thing that comes out of, of struggle and trial is there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good things that come out of, of struggle and trial. And so it, it'll be cool to see how that comes out, you know, in music specifically in, you know, the punk hardcore metal kind of world. Uh, yeah. I, I'm really curious to hear about the artwork. So as soon as I saw the artwork, I was like, that looks like Heather McLean. So I went to her Instagram and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to hear the, the kind of thought process be, behind the artwork and if it has any special meaning or. Well, Heather, Heather and Casey know each other. I think they used to live together. Like they're a bunch of friends living together. She was married to his, um, his roommate or something. I, I can't remember the story, but the, um, she's a Calgary artist and she's a wonderful artist. She's, yeah. she's known worldwide for her, for her art tattooing and all that. And she had done uh, a few evidence records, which was Casey's old band. And so we knew her and, uh, and I know a lot of people want to have her, you know, do their art. And so we, I knew that like with this record, I didn't want to do this sort of like, you know, cartoon illustration, you know, sort of front cover that you see a lot of punk bands do. Right. Right. I wanted something that was maybe a little more, a little different, you know? So 
Uh, and I knew she was the right person for it. So um, we reached out to her and she was excited to do it. And uh, she's actually quite good friends with Ryan as well. So um, he does, she, she's tattooed him a lot. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, just, we started, me and her just started um, chatting and, and coming up with ideas and we had a title hindsight is a sixth sense and just said, okay, you go with it. Just think, think of some things. And she came back with a sketch and I was like, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What, what kind of ideas had you given her? Did you just kind of share some lyrics or kind of? You did. Yeah. I, I can't remember which songs I sent her. I sent her three or four lyrics. So she had a few of those to kind of read through, but just to kind of take that and put it with the, the, the title of the record and just kind of come up with whatever you, you think. And so she, I don't know if there was even a second idea. She came back with that. And we're like, awesome. Yeah. Well, we I didn't really have, we weren't too worried. Like, yeah. it's like whatever, even if it doesn't make sense, whatever you put out is going to look amazing. So yeah. that's kind of was our mindset. And, you know, so all the textured background and everything um, was done actually by uh, Sebas, who, who from uh, stereo design, he's out in New Brunswick and he does a lot of bands, t-shirts and inlays and stuff. And so we had the front cover and then we sent it to him and then he kind of textured it up and did the whole inlay and also did a great job. So Seb, Seb and I go way back and he's done lots of Belvedere t-shirts and stuff. So, yeah, well, that's, that's really exciting. Like I, I'm such an artwork guy, you know, and I, I still love that a lot of bands you know in this scene the genre are still putting time and effort into artwork because you know i think in the kind of mainstream market artwork's not as as big of a thing you know with streaming or singles and and so that's like the thing that always you know i mean catches everybody's eye first right it kind of you see it and it's like okay like either i'm more intrigued or i just want to listen to the song and i don't care about the artwork or whatever right like it's yeah one of those things and like that, the and also the album title too. Like all of our all of our album titles are five words and six syllables. So oh um, cool. So you have this format that you're trying to. So of course I'm spinning my wheels for a week. Like you know how can I, da na 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 na. You know how how what's gonna work? And I had all these ideas and they weren't really coming to me a little bit. And I go to Casey. I'm like, what do you think? He's like, oh hindsight is a sixth sense. Like that. Wow. And I was like, everyone was just like. Yeah, like <laughs> so. Then we just like gave that to Heather, and then that was it. And so, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to to connect again. This has been a blast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the questions. That was a great interview.